Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with Brigida Sir, hosted by David Busis. Brigida was an admissions reader for the University of Virginia School of Law. Her beat was the presumptive deny pile. Those were the applications with both numbers below the median. So David asked her what made her flag a file for extra consideration. Stay tuned for her answer to that question and the questions of the audience. Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David, a partner at Seven Sage, and I am so pleased to host Brigida Sir, a former admissions reader for the University of Virginia School of Law. Brigida holds a BA from the University of Texas at Austin and a JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. For two years, she worked in admissions at the UVA School of Law. As she assessed prospective JD files, she often thought about how the applicants could have done a better job of conveying their strengths and contextualizing their weaknesses. Prior to her work as a consultant, Brigida traversed the globe as an international human rights lawyer, advocating for truth, justice, and reparations in post-conflict societies, working for organizations such as Human Rights Watch and the Coalition for the International Criminal Court, she carried out fact-finding, training, and advocacy missions to more than two dozen countries, meeting with stakeholders from presidents to survivor collectives. She feels honored to have had a hand in the legal reforms of over 50 countries, ranging from Costa Rica to South Africa. Brigida also spent several years working in Guatemala, first as a counsel to a human rights NGO, and then as an investigator of the atrocities committed during the country's 36-year armed conflict. Brigida continues to consult with foundations and nonprofits on human rights programs and research covering issues such as justice reform, LGBTQ advocacy, and anti-slavery initiatives. When she's not working, you can find Brigida hiking the trails of the Santa Monica Mountains with her ball-crazy Labrador named Milo. Thanks, Brigida. That is quite a bio. I am oppressed anew every time I read it. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I just want to start by asking you what you did when you were working for the UVA School of Law. So uh, like all, all law schools, or at least as far as I know, all law schools have readers who are typically graduates of that school. And they, in a way, are almost like the first person, the first human who reads the applications um, after the computer does its algorithm. And so it's a way to help sift applications and do a first review and assessment um, to try to guide the, commi- the, the committee to make the right decision. And so basically that, that's it in a nutshell. Okay, and uh, tell me what you're looking for as you read files. What we're looking for is someone who presents a compelling case for themselves. And that can be, that can be many factors. Of course, we know GPA and LSAT are, are very, very important. Also being able to write cogently, interestingly, uh, effectively, that, that matters. Uh, I, I believe the personality that someone emits through their writing is also important. You want someone who has exhibited good decision-making and ethics. If and when there's been a problem, which is understandable, people deserve second chances, they explain and contextualize those issues in an appropriate way that, that makes you understand what happened and you know, to the extent you can in a piece of paper, believe that they have put those issues behind them. So I understand that sometimes you really went to bat for candidates who were presumptive denies because they were below both the median GPA and the LSAT GP, or the LSAT median. And um, sometimes they were far below. So, so what is it that would make you go to bat for an applicant like that? Well, I think it was more that out of the pool, so my specialty, so to speak, were the presumptive denies, which means you're under median or, or significantly under median in one or under median in both. And of course, that's a huge group of candidates, especially for a highly selective college. So it could be a law school. It could be those, you know, in the case of UVA, 168 and a 3.8 is still going to be a presumptive deny because it's under median. Um, potentially, right? Or it could be, you know, the 2.0 and 135. It could be, it's the full range of students who, who came into my pile. And what I was looking for was such a range of, of things, but 
if you're saying like, who did I fall in love with? Who did I really write an extremely, you know, uh, advocacy oriented um, assessment about? It was someone who captured uh, my interest, um, who told a story that I could believe in, who made me, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I had, I, students have made me cry reading their essays. Not everyone has to do that. Not everyone has that story, but there are, there are gifted writers who have a way of telling a story about who they are that just makes you root for them, makes you want to admit them. Um, and I know that's a high bar and it does, not everyone has to do that, but there are students who do. Is it possible to do that if you have lived a quote unquote average life? I think there are many ways to do that. Um, so one thing is to be a good writer. You can tell a not that, in, not, uh, I guess it's a combination of the story you're telling and how you're telling it. Um, and, and right now I'm focusing on the personal statement. Of course, that alone is, gets very few people in admission, I think. It's just one piece. But if you're talking about the personal statement, I think, yeah, it's the story you're telling and how you're telling it. And so some people, I reflected on the fact that their writing was compelling and, and great. The story was not that exceptional, but they just told it well. And, and that means something to me because in the law, you're, all, you're having to write clearly, effectively, and persuasively regardless of if the facts are that interesting or not. So that is interesting and that, that, that meant something to me. Sometimes people have um, very interesting stories to tell. If it's an interesting story told not that well, it's also probably not that helpful, ultimately. It needs to ideally have, have both elements or certainly be told well. So uh, you said that there are basically two buckets. There are applicants who are far below the median, uh, far below one of the medians, or applicants who are below both of the medians, and perhaps not that far below. So you have someone with, say, a three one point... above, and yeah, one above, one of the two above median, and one significantly below. But what significantly means, I I can't tell you. Um, you know what the algorithm calls significant. So who ultimately had a better chance of getting admitted? somebody who had one above and one significantly below or somebody who had both slightly below? I, I, I don't know that I did the math, you know, the, the, I, I didn't plot the data completely, but um, my impression is that one above and one significantly below is better than both below. That's my impression. Um, and it would be in interesting actually to see that um, plotted on a, on a graph. Got it. Maybe that, maybe that exists out there. I don't know. But um, I, I believe you're much better off if, if at least one of your two numbers is above. Yeah, that makes sense. So for those applicants who have one number above and one significantly below, and let's just say that it's the GPA that's significantly below, what are you looking for when you read an addendum about the GPA that might be a 2.9 or a 2.5? So I read many, many GPA addenda. And I would say that I, I read many good ones and I read some very not good ones. <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you first what doesn't work and it's blaming the professor or, or well, let me, let me pause that. I'll tell you what, what does work. What does work is when you can show that something's appreciably changed in your life. I had a, a GPA addenda of, of folks who had an addiction in college. They wrote persuasively about the fact that that addiction affected them. They were in treatment, had been in treatment, and for X number of years have lived differently and have the work-related uh, LORs to show that. Perhaps they also, in that case, they have a LSAT to show the, their potential. That's compelling to me because what the reason for their low GPA is no longer going to affect them. I mean, theoretically, right? Of course, someone can relapse, but... So those I found very effective. And there are other reasons too, not just addiction. It can be an abusive relationship or a mental illness or family care. There are many, many reasons why you are not fulfilling your potential at one period of time in your life and you could fulfill it later. So those to me were the ones that were most compelling. That makes a lot of sense. What about um, character and fitness issues? Are there, you know, are there things in the explanation that made you just run away? And conversely, did people manage to explain pretty serious uh, character, and fish, char character and fitness liabilities in a way that 
made you willing to give them a different another chance? Uh, definitely. I mean, first of all, I, um, I also read hundreds um, of character and fitness addenda. Um, and I would say that how it's written is crucially important to, to how I feel about, about that candidate. And um, first of all, small, small indiscretions are really not something that are going to stand in the way of anyone and don't need to be overly explained. And by small ones, you know, traffic tickets, you know, noise in the dorm, violations, a candle in the dorm, like a lot of those kinds of things are just, you have to mention them because they're on your record, but you don't have to go overboard in describing them and, and regret and all of that. It's the more significant ones that I think are, um, need to be a little bit better explained. And for me, a heartbreaking one was um, shoplifting because it is a significant lapse in judgment. Um, but if you, shoplifted when we were 13 and you were busted one time and you write persuasively about how you're not that person anymore, that's meaningful to me and I'm not gonna let that stand in the way. I did have one and I have to be careful with the facts because I don't want it to be, you know, uh, I can't of course link it to anyone, but I had one who was a little older when they stole something and the way they wrote about it, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't convinced that they understood the magnitude of what they did and were busted for and the disrespect that, you know, anyway, so that did not, did not work for me. Um, so I had another one that did, I think anything violent is more significant. Um, but even then I had one that wrote so well and beautifully about the circumstances around that, that I kind of bought it. I bought his explanation and I felt for him and I wanted to support him. And I, I think I did. I don't know, if, of course, now if he got in or not, but, um, but I did uh, buy his example or his, his, his explanation. This is a really hard question to answer, but what is it do you think that sometimes convinces you that people are being genuine? Well, I think that we can't know for sure, right? I mean, it, 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 if someone's genuine, it, it seems genuine. Are they taking responsibility for what they did? Are they putting context around whatever legal problem they, they might have had? Those are the things, and if they're writing in a way that's persuasive, I mean, those things help you think, of course, somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone could be ball-faced lying. We're unlikely to, to be able to know that, uh, but, but that, that's across the board, not just with um, character and fitness. We hope that's not true. You know, We ask for signatures and affirmations, et cetera, like you will be asked to do all through your legal career, but we can't 100% know for sure if someone's not lying. But what comes through is acknowledgement, acceptance, um, taking responsibility, and showing that it hasn't reoccurred in your life. I think I think that's what helps. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to loop back to what you mentioned about um, the GPA addenda. So, yeah. are you saying an addiction is not a red flag for you, or not necessarily? It depends on the circumstances around it. If it was last week, um, where you when you if you graduated with a two point five in May and you're applying for law school now, and you're telling me that there was an addiction problem, I don't know. Um, that's a little bit less convincing. But the ones that I have in my mind were students who were out for a number of years, or went to college, had the problem, wrote about the problem years later after they had had a significant period of time no longer having a problem. So is it a risk? Absolutely, because you know there's a lot of evidence around um, relapse, et cetera. And I can't tell you what the dean finally did with these candidates. I don't, I didn't follow it that closely, but I know that I can think of several that I was quite convinced um, had moved past and deserved a chance. That makes sense. In general, what were the most common mistakes that made you just instantly know you were not going to recommend this candidate? I, I mean, I feel like there, there was a full range. So there were, believe it or not, typos. Um, and numerous typos. I, everyone can make a mistake. Everyone can miss, you know, a letter here or there. I don't think that alone is going to raise a red flag. But when I see two or three or four in, in, in one application, I have to start wondering what's, what's going on. If the person is just extremely careless or maybe doesn't really care about applying to law school. Um, so that's one. I think um, overly long uh, personal statements, likewise, way too short ones that are not that interesting. Those were both things where this person's not really bringing, bringing their focus and their A-game to this, to this application. In terms of character and fitness, I think like we said, a pattern 
of bad decision making, and not so much one or two uh, bad decisions, and and or violence. But even then, question mark. Uh, let's see what else. Um, I think for me, I, there's one student, um, the GPA tandem that I thought was really, I just made my heart sink, that the the GPA was actually above median. So in my opinion, there was nothing to explain. Uh, but she went on to explain why she got a certain grade that was below her norm in a certain class and blamed the professor for it. And I thought I was just poor decision-making because first of all, you're above median, stop talking. Two, I would have never noticed that one grade out of character because if you're above median, I'm not looking that closely that, or even if I saw one C or one whatever, I'm not going to ding you for, this is not undergrad, right? I wasn't going to ding someone for one C. And then to describe it and not take responsibility for it yourself to blame the professor, I just, I, I thought that showed immaturity and, and bad decision making. So I did not like that. Did applications ever leave you with questions that you actually pursued by contacting them or asking the dean to contact them? Um, there were a few. Uh, well, sorry, let me go back to, the, to, to another thing that I think kind of t would be a problem is if I was left with questions, not the deep questions where I might go Google it, but questions like don't use too many acronyms, don't tell me where you work without the name of the company without any reference to what kind of company it is, or you know, too much company lingo where I really couldn't tell what these people were doing, what they did for a job because they didn't explain it properly. Um, like an average lawyer reading your resume should be able to tell what you actually did. And, and without having to wade through a bunch of lingo, or if they just didn't properly explain things. If I were, even after the explanation, I was left with a bunch of um, questions, that, that doesn't work for me. Um, back to your, your question, remind me what it was, sorry. Oh, my question was, did, did people ever leave you with questions that you actually pursued by contacting the applicant or asking someone else to? Yes, there, there were a few that had more serious allegations or serious issues that were highlighted um, that I did flag for the director of admissions and, and the dean to, to look at. I did a little research on it and I, I highlighted that for them. But I think that was, in my case, more of the exception than, than something I did frequently. Got it. Do you have any advice about how people can get better letters of recommendation? Well, I... I on, on, on the letter of recommendation, at least from my experience, I would read the, the, the LSAC file that had, you know, the regular information and the personal statement and a lot of the addenda first. And then I would go to the second piece that had, if I remember correctly, uh, the LORs and the transcript, I think. I can't remember now. But my point is, by the time I got to the LOR, I had an opinion formed, or at least uh, the, the beginning is of an opinion formed. And I remember noting that it was a rare case, not unheard of, but a rare case that the LOR actually changed my opinion. So it typically, you know, oh, I like this person. I think I'm going to recommend admit. LOR is all good, good, good. Yeah, I'm going to recommend admit. Um, it was the rare one where I thought, oh, this is a, you know, this is a great candidate. I think I'm going to admit him. And then the LOR was so bad that I changed it. That only happened, you know, I'm going to say 5% of the time. Um, and another five, maybe 8% of the time, the LOR was so great that I, I thought, oh, I, I must be missing something. Let me, let me go back into this and, and maybe change my opinion based on such a great LOR. So just, just to bear that in mind. Now, that's my experience. Other people may do it differently. As far as getting good ones, I do think if they know something about you, it's really important. I agree with the advice I've, I've seen that you've given, David, that you know, it's about the, how much the person knows you, not who the person is. It's not interesting to me if the senator or the governor's whatever uh, writes an LOR, unless you work for them. Or, um, but if, you, if it's your grandfather's roommate from college, it, it doesn't, I don't think it's persuasive. If it's obvious that you wrote it for the LOR, for the writer, it's also not that great. Sometimes that's obvious because I get two LORs or three LORs that kind of have the same information in it. And it's clear that everyone just kind of cut and pasted something together. That's not the best either. So try to, try to of course, you want to send your um, recommender information about you and your CV and this and that. But you, you want to see if you can tailor it a little bit too so that it's not the exact same letter three times. How much did you care about the applicant's legal work experience or lack thereof? I think it depends. If you've been out of school and you're 
work experience is not legal, then that's fine. But I think you have to say then why, what's your interest in law? Why law? Why now? It can be something you say, not something you show. If that's, if, if that's what you have to do, I think it's more persuasive if, and very interesting actually to see all the different jobs people do and how it leads them to the law. If you're coming straight from undergrad, I, it's always helpful that, that you can show why this is not just a, oh my God, I'm never going to get a job. Let me go to law school thought, but I'm not going to say I'm, I, I would, you know, ding someone because they, they um, haven't worked in the law. I think it's very, very helpful though. And sometimes I do. That's the question. Sometimes I ask myself, why does this person want to go to law school? You really don't want your reader to think that after they finish reading your application. Somehow you've got to convey that. Got it. Okay. Two more questions. How much time did you spend on average per app? In my, uh, probably around 20 minutes. So you would read it um, all the way through, pretty much start to finish, and then write the assessment. So between that, it was probably about 20 minutes. And that's just one person, right? Then it goes to a next, a next person, and they, they also do their, do their thing. So it's not like it's one person, 20 minutes, and that's it. Got it. And my last question is, how often, and I know you didn't track the data, but how often do you think you really did go to bat for somebody who was a presumptive deny? I guess define go to bat. Recommend that they get a much closer look or you know, do what you can to make sure that they're accepted or waitlisted and not denied. Well, I, I think of my candidates, I would say is, um, a not insignificant percentage got an admit from me. Um, I, 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 could it be a third, something like that? A much higher percentage than actually did get um, an admit, of course, because I, that wasn't my job. My job wasn't to, 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 to fluff the numbers or figure out the numbers or the, the medians. It was simply to read, to assess the person and to make my best decision. So I didn't think too much about, did I you know, already admit, you know, recommend admit five times in a row, then I can't do this. And I didn't play that game. I tried to just assess everyone on their merits and, and then do that. There were a relatively few that I really went above and beyond for um, that I, who I just, like I say, I fell in love with. I really wanted them there um, at UVA. And, you know, so I would extra flag them or, or, or ask after them or, you know, push a little bit. That wasn't really um, my role. Um, but I certainly feel like I had a, a hand in pushing forward, you know, hundreds of folks to get a better view than they would have. Thanks, Brigida. That was so helpful. And I'm going to open it up to everyone else so that you all can pick Brigida's brain as well. We're going to ask you to raise your hands first. I will take some questions from the typed box, but we like it better when we get to hear your voice. So, Richard. Hi, um, my name is Richard, and thank you so much for doing this. Can you hear me? We can. Okay, great. So my question is on uh, early decisions. So I think Spivey released the report of a couple of schools where early decision actually makes a difference. And one of those is UVA. And my question is, when applying early decision, how much of a difference does it make if you apply early decision in September versus maybe a little bit later, like in December, January, given that UVA has a um, guaranteed, I think, 15-day reply rate? And and just to follow up on that is because um, early decision is, is binding. So um, to, to think strategically about it, would someone with numbers like slightly below both mediums be helpful or would it only be for you know drastic splitters like what how would you strategize um those and i'm asking particularly because i come from a like a institution uh that has a lot of grade deflation and it um yeah and that's just a challenge that a lot of undergrads from um my school have yeah well I don't have a lot of expertise about early decision at UVA because that was done separate from me. So those, those folks didn't come into my pile and therefore, you know, I never assessed, I, I never assessed them. I will say, generally speaking, um, UVA and many other schools, if you apply early, you do have a better chance just because it's early. There's not as many you're, you know, they're, they're, if you, if you're a really great candidate, they're just going to try to grab you. Um, I don't know. I, can, I really can't speak to the early decision. I'll speak to it. Richard, um, I can't prove this with data, but I feel extremely confident in saying that if you're applying early decision, 
there's no difference between applying ED in October and applying ED on November 15th. I don't think that those ED spots are going to run out. I think that if you're in the early decision pool, you're in the early decision pool, and that's it. Um, that is my very strong suspicion, although, like I said, I, I, I can't absolutely prove it. Um, the next thing I want to say is that we actually um, we have a statistician on the team, and so we really looked into this question of whether there are some schools for which early decision matters more. And what we discovered is that we can't tell. There's not enough data. So we think that when we aggregate all the schools, it's in incredibly clear that early decision helps. And we're very confident in sort of um, recommending that you apply early decision if, of course, you're willing to take the trade-off, which at many schools means you won't get any merit-based financial aid, and which also means, of course, you don't have any options. Um, but we're pretty suspicious of any conclusions that say early decision helps you 613% at NYU, but only 431% at UVA and negative 78% at Georgetown or whatever. Um, because when you're dealing with a really small sample size, one decision can completely change the outcome that you see in your model. The last thing I was going to say is, based on what we've seen, early decision helps a lot more if you are indeed above one of the medians. And to understand why, you have to think about it from the point of view of admissions officers who are, and this wasn't Brigitte's role, but admissions officers who are trying to make sure that their numbers are going to look good when they release them in those ABA disclosures and when U.S. News um, runs their algorithm on it to create the rankings. Admissions officers get two things from ED. One, they get, if they're not offering automatic scholarships, a guarantee of a student who's going to play stick, who's going to pay sticker price. So they don't have to worry about, um, you know, that revenue at least. And two, they can lock in a student who supports at least one of the medians, knowing that they may be able to find somebody who can support the other one to make up for it. And um, generally, since they are able to find people who can support at least one median, it's uh, I, I've never seen somebody who's below both medians get in ED. Um, what usually happens is that they're just rolled over into the regular decision pile. Okay, great. Um, and so just to clarify what you said earlier, um, with ED just being the same throughout. So there's no difference between EDing um, like September 1st because UVA has, like you can ED anytime versus EDing like January. It's just like, it's all in the same pile. And, and so there's no difference with ED in terms of its time, like how early or how late you apply. Oh, I didn't actually, I'm not looking at the sheet. I didn't realize that UVA doesn't have an ED deadline. Yeah, it's, it's, there's no, um, there's no, like, I think UVA has a, you can ED anytime and they guarantee a 15 day response. Oh, okay. They're, they're different so, than other. Yeah. So if that's the case, hold on. <laughs> that's, yeah. that was the sound of me eating my words. I completely take it back. Okay, I think there yeah. probably is a big difference be between okay. applying ED in September and applying ED in January. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, oh, so. Okay, so 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 it would because I think for a lot of ED applicants, there's a, a theory of first doing the um, EDs where there is a firm deadline, such as like Chicago, NYU. That's usually right, November. and then trying to get another ED in, and then, and then if, if that doesn't work out, then ED UVA um, because then you'll have more option. But my concern is that in that option, you'll be eating UVA in like December, January, versus if you EDA ED UVA in September. Um, would that be like a different, like a, those four months? Right. Would that, and so in terms of strategically thinking, um, ED, knowing that you're a splitter and knowing, you know, how do I strategize? Should I ED Chicago, NYU first, and then ED UVA if it doesn't work out? Or should I ED UVA first because it's earlier? That's, that's kind of the, the question, yeah. So, yeah, when it comes to ED, I obviously there's always an opportunity cost, right? You ED yeah. to one school and you can't ED to another school, and that's the dilemma. And my own solution usually is to take a really dumb approach. I think that you can outwit yourself. And so my my trusted dumb approach is to ED to the school where you want to go as opposed to trying to, you know, create the most uh, strategic list. Uh, but if you are trying to create the most strategic list, uh, you may still want to 
ED to, you know, a top school that you really want to go to and then go on down the line. Uh, so you just have to weigh the, I mean, you should at least feel confident that applying ED to UVA in January is better than applying regular decision to UVA in January. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I guess it's not clear in terms of how much of difference in terms of eating September versus eating January, if it if it hurts that much that you would not ED in September. I mean, in, in January, just yeah, I guess there's there's not that much data in terms of how big of a difference eating and yeah, like I said, we don't know, but we do know that applying early helps. And, and since, you know, uh, if UVA doesn't have a, an ED deadline, then, you know, they're they're probably not waiting for all the ED decisions to come in um, before they make any decisions. So, yeah, I would guess that the same general rule of thumb applies. This is obviously just a case of semantics to some extent, but I don't really think in terms of like the penalty for applying later. I just think in terms of the advantage of applying earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, yeah, thank you so much. That was really helpful. Okay. I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Sorry that our answers were mushy. <laughs> David, there's so many great questions. I know. What um, should we do? We're just going to have to call on Justin. Okay. Hi, thank you. Uh, I, I the YX statement, um, and my question is kind of piggybacking off of the uh, David's question of determining whether or not a statement's genuine or not. YX typically calls on various factors, including professors and visiting the school. What did you, uh, first off, did you read uh, YUVA statements? Yes. Okay. And what, what struck you as particularly genuine in these statements or what kind of research did students right. do that was in your mind, uh, good, good enough to qualify such a statement? Yeah. So that, that there's a wide variety, you know, um, of, of supposed why I must just say UVA just because that's what I worked on. I always made a note. So in my summary, I always said if there was a uh, YUVA or no YUVA and, you know, if, or if it was placeholder um, or if it was a particularly good one. I mean, one of them I went crazy about because it was the literally the best YUVA I'd ever read in my life. And I flagged it for the Dean. Um, but for the most part, I would say, you know, the placeholder is not going to win you a lot of points, you know, and that's why I want to go to UVA. And, and if you could just basically take out UVA and put in Chicago, Duke, uh, Virginia, whatever, Vanderbilt, it, it doesn't really do you a whole lot of good. What made a good one was, um, oh, and then there's the second level, which is, you know, kind of the general, it's the atmosphere and the location and this professor this and the clinic that. Those are good because it shows you actually spend a little time. It, it's also not... I mean, it's not going to be a total deal breaker. I think that's a tough one because you just do the best you can. You First of all, you have to be sincere about the school, right? You have to, do you really want to go there and why? Just answer that to yourself and then do the research to support that. I know that even though I made a note of it every single time when I, in discussions with the rest of the team and the director and all of that, it doesn't factor in that hugely to them, I don't think. Um, if they really want someone, they're not going to not accept them because they didn't do a YUVA. But, you know, if you can do a compelling one, it helps a little bit. You, just, you see what I mean? So it's a very, it's a very um, nuanced, nuanced thing. Yeah. As far as like substance, I mean, you want it to be, yeah, interesting, compelling, sounds genuine, sounds sincere. Um, I mean, I don't know, just a good piece of writing. And just like with everything else, it's a, it's a, I read it and objectively speaking, it sounds like it makes sense to me. Okay. To that end, would you say a, a visit significantly helps such essays or, or can you write a compelling one without ever having visited? Oh, uh, you definitely can. I mean, first of all, law schools are very cognizant of the fact that, that people have all different levels of economic possibility to visit or to do these things. And we try our best to keep the playing field as level as possible. So I don't think that, you know, people shouldn't break the bank to visit because I don't think it helps enough. I think you can, it, it, talking to alums or having read about XYZ, a couple people mentioned, you know, the Dean's statement back in the, you know, after the Charlottesville um, incident. And, you know, they were truly moved by what the Dean had to say. And that was interesting to me, you know, um, because they said something that seemed truly interested in the school and showed some effort. 
Um, so no, I don't think you should go there with just so you have something to say in a in a in a Y UVA or Y whatever. Great. Okay. Thank you, Brigida. Hi, Kira. Hi there. Uh, first, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, so a couple questions. When you first started speaking, you mentioned the computer algorithm that does the initial sort. That yeah. got me curious. Can you speak a little bit more about that process? I well, so like it, I, my understanding is that. Applications come in and there's an algorithm that separates them into presumptive admits, presumptive denies. And that's based off of the numbers. Uh, presumptive admits, and by the way, that doesn't mean you're getting in, but you just have a, you're in that half of the pile. You're above median on both, or you're above median on one and reasonably close. And that's where the, what the voodoo is that exactly what means reasonably close, I don't know, but somewhere there's a cutoff, you're in the top pile. If you're below median in both or uh, have a big split above in one and quite significantly below in the other, you're in my pile or, you know, whoever is doing my job now um, and you're in my pile. And then, yeah. And so there is a significant difference in the numbers, uh, number of participants, uh, applicants who get in in each of these piles. But yeah, that's how that split. And I think that's how other law schools do it too, but I'm not sure. Okay. That's helpful to know. You also spoke a bit about the recommendations. Um, I know you said it's not the most important part of the application per se, but I am wondering, um, for people that have been out of school for, you know, not decades, but maybe like five years, if they had, for example, one professor and two employers from different jobs, would that be an acceptable way to handle recommendations? Or do you have any thoughts on the number of academic references you should have versus professional and how far out? I think if you've been out five years and have been doing, you know, professional level work that's relevant to the law in whatever way, even if it, you know, or, or that you're building on, I think one academic and two professional is fantastic. I don't, I, I think um, at that point, your work, for me, the work uh, LORs were, were even more important. Um, I think if you're, if you haven't had as much relevant experience or you're straight out of school, you can't really avoid those academic and, and you have more reason to actually request them. Professors are going to remember you. It's been closer. But five years out, I would, I would be fine with what you said. Okay, that's an incredible thing to hear. Thank you. Yeah. And, and again, this is my opinion based off how I treated them. But also from what I've heard from others, there may be people out there who have a different opinion. Okay. Um, and last question. This one might be a little bit difficult to answer. But there is a lot of talk about... Uh, personal statements and trying to get away from sort of a generic, you know, like really emotional opener and then tying yeah. it back to yourself. Do you have any recommendations on how to veer away from that or a different direction that would work? Or alternatively, does that work for you? I mean, it, it, it was funny because I, you know, I started doing this work and about 100 or 200 in, I, I really saw that kind of New York Times, you know, story um, format where you start with this quote type thing, you know, one day, blah, 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 and it kind of captures you. And then you go back and you link it through. It, it, it did, and I, you see it a lot. So I know it must be written somewhere that this is a good idea. Um, and it is, it does work. I'm not, I, I'm not suggesting it, it doesn't work at all. It, it does work. But now that particular writing cat is out of the bag enough that there's so many people doing it. Other, other formats work fine. I, I, don't, I don't believe, and I'm not privy to any knowledge that says, that's now annoying, um, do something else, okay? But you certainly shouldn't feel like you have to do that if you have something else to say. Um, what doesn't really work to me were the ones, and it's not terrible, it's not like you're gonna reject an amazing other candidate otherwise just because their writing's a little bit boring, but if you're just saying, oh, I went to, law, I went to college and I was in pre-law society and then I did this and I did this internship, blah, 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 blah. If it's kind of chronological, that doesn't really work for me. That, then I would suggest, you know, what was that moment when you decided you were going to law school, you know, mm -hmm. the case or the course or the, something your professor said, start with that and kind of work it back. That's why they do that, because it is much more interesting than some kind of chronological story of your life. Does that answer? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kira. Fatma, you are up. So I had a question specifically in terms of um, reapplicants and the personal statement. Um, I don't know if you reviewed any applications that were reapplicants, but would you prefer to have a completely new personal statement or just an 
like a more updated version of the old one is fine. I don't really know how to navigate that. I would love any help. I definitely had my fair share of reapplicants. I don't think I would know if it were the same or a different personal statement. I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the format in which I would know that. So like I you don't, don't see the old application? I don't think so. Okay. David, am I, help me remember here. I don't think I would have seen the old one. I mean, what I see, for example, is the LORs have a date from last year or something like that, which is fine. I saw that many, many times. I, just, I don't think they would have included the, the second um, personal statement. But, but the, 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 the caveat I would say is if you've done something significant since last year, work that in. And it doesn't, it could be in the personal statement. It could be in an addendum. It could just be somewhere on your, obviously on your resume, but you might, if it's significant to your pursuit of a law degree, you'll, you'll want to make sure we know that. Or your L, you took your LSAT and it went up eight points. That's, that's good to know too. Anything that makes it clear that you have something else to offer. Fatma, I'll, I'll just add that some of the other admissions officers on our team have told us that they would pull the file of reapplicants and they would check to see if um, the personal statement was different. So I think one takeaway is just the process is different at different schools. To that caveat, I, I wasn't doing it right as the reader, but I don't know if when it got to the dean's desk, would they pull, would they pull maybe? So I'd be a good question to ask someone else as well. But did they want the answer to be yes or no, David? Did they want a, a new personal statement? So Celine wants it revised. I can't remember what Elizabeth said. Okay, good. Great, know. thank you. Okay, we are going to Aaron Kramer. Hi, y'all. Um, thank you for doing this again. Um, my question is, uh, I've been working for three, four years now. Um, who should we ask for a letter of recommendation if we don't want our workplace to know I'm going to school? Um, I know I, I don't want, you know, large Christmas bonuses, anything like that, and boutique consulting being impacted by wanting to leave within the year. Is this your first job out of undergrad? Second. Okay, uh, so no. can you get one from your first job? Probably not. I did not leave on, I, I left on, <laughs> we didn't leave on great terms. I didn't have any relations with anyone there, really. Is there any, so... Uh, typically, I would say that it's, you know, we certainly understand that in certain sectors or certain industries, you, you, you don't want to let your current employer know, which is, you know, a little sad, but I understand that. Right. Um, but you, I do feel like if you are, have been out for three or four years and don't have an employer reference, I, that is going to raise a flag for me. I, I'm, I don't know that it's deadly, but I, I don't really, I think it would raise a, a, a question for me. So yes. what do you do? Find some supervisor at job one or job two who has left the firm who could write the LOR for you, who was then not going to, you know, one, carry the party line of the first or two, inform your current employer. Is that possible? No, ma'am. Uh, we're 30 person firm and no one's left since I've been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, so what I would do, like when I was a supervisor, if someone came to me and said that they did, they weren't ready to tell anyone, but they're leaving, would I write them a recommendation? I would have said yes, and I would have kept my mouth shut. Is there anyone right. like that? I think I might be able to. It's just, it's a small office, so it would yeah. get out quick, I'm sure. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think, I do think it would look odd to be employed right. for three years and not have an employer reference. David, do you agree with that? I do. No, thank you for the honesty. I just wanted to ensure. <laughs> yeah, yeah it work really. Yeah, stretch your brain a bit to think of ways around that. Um, that you can, you can come up with someone. Sorry, we don't have a better solution yeah. for you, Aaron. Yeah. Right, or a statistic. <laughs> thank yeah. you. All. Mm -hmm. Good luck, um, Trang. You can ask your question. Um, thank you so much for doing this. So my question is about. Which, like between the GPA and LSAT, which one is the more important factor? Because I've read most of the articles saying that the LSAT is like between the two, they'd still prefer having like the LSAT being above medium than having the GPA above medium. Um, it was hard to hear Trang's uh, question because of the, the noise in the background, but I think she was asking, you know, if what's more important to be above median LSAT or GPA. I mean, I, I think that depends from school to school and from year to year. So what happens sometimes is a school gets really close to raising their median, like from a 
165 to 166, well, that year, it's going to be more important to be above a 166 or above. Maybe uh, the next year, it's not going to be as crucial because they're not trying to raise that median. Um, so I don't think it's a, an across the board thing. I do think, you know, the LSAT is one of those quasi neutral assessments, but we all know that it's not neutral either. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure I would agree that there's one that's more important to another. I just, I, I think, I think they both are important for different reasons. And yeah, I mean, maybe is a 180 better than a 4.0? Maybe. It's certainly more rare. Y yeah, exactly. And it's more objective in some senses of the word. Um, than a 4.0. So yeah, I, I mean, I at least yeah. somebody tried to standardize it. No one's trying to standardize GPAs for all schools. We we see that the LSAT tends to carry more weight. So if you have not that you really have the choice, but you ha if you have to be above the median of either the GPA or the LSAT, you want to be above the median of the LSAT. Jarius, I've just unmuted you. You can ask your question. Okay, perfect. Um, I was just curious because I'm getting help writing my personal statement from a teacher who uh, is a PA, has a uh, doctorate in economics, and she's uh, been telling me that, you know, things need to be just straight, clear, and to the point when you're writing your personal statement, but then I hear, you know, you guys saying that you want to have a personal statement that has like a little flavor that tells a story. I'm kind of confused on which one I should go with. Well, um, I think... I, you know, who knows, maybe for a PhD in economics, it's different, or an MBA, it's different. I, I can't really speak to those. But for law school, it, the overall feeling of the personal statement matters, because I'm painting a picture of the candidate in my mind as I'm reading the story, as I'm reading the personal statement. So it shouldn't be too... I mean, straightforward is good if, if at the end of that, I... I Feel like I know something about you and I know who you are I know what you care about or I know uh, your hopes and dreams or, or whatever I mean I, I think I think straightforward's not bad it depends on what you mean by straightforward and, I, and I'm not trying to suggest you write a, a piece of creative writing either um, I certainly have seen any number of personal statements that look like excerpts from English papers in college that I thought were terrible um, not interesting, did not tell me anything about the human being behind the story. It was just a, like an erudite bit of writing. To me, that doesn't work. I'll, I'll step in and say, Jarius, I think you might be creating a false dilemma here. I think that you can tell a story with a lot of flavor and write in a very clear, straightforward way. Sometimes we work with students who think that telling a story that's emotional means using a lot of words in every sentence or using a lot of clauses or using a lot of adjectives. And that's not true. You can affect readers. You can pull at their hearts by writing with exquisite clarity. And in fact, you have a better chance of doing it. The hallmark of good writing is not simplicity, but simpleness. You say things, you express yourself in the simplest possible way, even if you're telling a really good story. Hope that helps. Yeah, and don't fall us also another trap that some folks fell into. It's almost like they wrote their personal statement and then went to a thesaurus and 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 replaced every word with a more complicated word. I found those excruciating to read. And I and I would write in the summary too many SAT words. So don't do that either. It's just it's not interesting then. Or if it's too showy offy or I don't know what it was, but it did not work. And I I, I probably not more than 10 in my career did I read, but the, those 10 were not fun. Okay. Christian. Hello. Okay. So you spoke about the GPA addendum. Uh, my question is a little specific, but if you came across an applicant whose transcripts had multiple Fs early in their academic career, and they took several years off to work full time and handle the issues that they struggled with, if they returned to school and they did a complete 180, making, for example, the president's list every semester since up until graduation, how poorly would those Fs look? Is there such a thing as too many Fs? How would you go about um, addressing that? I think that's another good example of a GPA addendum that can work because you have shown that things have changed. And um, I can't tell you if you have one F versus five Fs or if you're, you know, your cumulative of that, that, that period of time was a 1.2 or a three point whatever. I don't know exactly the numbers, but I do know that that, that narrative or that arc can be compelling um, to, to, to me as a reader. 
that this is a young person who had some struggles, went off, fixed them, figured it out, has come back and actually showed extreme improvement. Um, I, I think that's meaningful to a law school. And again, just to say one thing on that, like if you have that story, it's always best if your LSAT is really good. <laughs> You're, you know, but I know not everyone has that combination. Tell the story anyway, but if your LSAT is extremely high, I think it's going to be all the more successful for you to tell that story that your GPA just doesn't tell the story of who you are. Gila, you can ask your question. Um, so thank you for doing this. Um, I am actually a resident of the state of Virginia and UVA compared to a lot of the other uh, T14 universities obviously is unique given that it is a public institution compared to others which are private institutions. Yeah. So uh, would you say that emphasizing sort of um, your uh, I guess ties to the state or things that you want to do in your future that probably will do things like help the Commonwealth of Virginia or like ensure like uh, uh, say show that you plan to actually, you know, stick around in the state, um, do you think would help in the application process? Yeah, I do. I, I think that, I mean, it's no secret that UVA gives an extra boost to residents. Um, exactly, you know, what that boost translates into is, it, it depends year to year and from candidate to candidate. But it was one of um, the things that I always noted is if the person was a resident. And, um, you know, that's a special circumstance of, of UVA. Um, I remember in particular a candidate who was one of those that was just barely in my pile. She was really almost there for the numbers and she really, she got in easily as a, as a, as a resident. And then another resident was a little bit more split and I was a little more, okay, well, yeah, she could be a really strong waitlist candidate. And she got in right away too. And then I just remember the comment being, this is a great candidate. Yeah. So I think and of course, many, many residents apply and do not get in, of course. So it's it's just an extra little boost. And you can, so that will be noted regardless of, of whether you write about it. But if you, you know, you don't want to go overboard, right? But um, but yes, it could be helpful. All right, thanks. So Ming Li, you can ask your question. Okay, perfect. Uh, my question is, I am planning to apply as soon as the application opens. But in the meantime of waiting for the results and going back to school uh, around like from November to uh, June or July, I'm planning to do some kind of internship or a job. And if I am confirmed a position, um, how would I be integrating those positions into my writing or is it better to just leave it out? Because if it's a good internship, I want them to know that I, I am going to pursue that kind of way in the meantime like i want them to know that i'm not wasting time and uh but uh would there be any like a appropriate way of integrating that future plans into my um i don't know some documents that i'm going to present if you're saying that you will finish your application turn it in and then go get an internship that turns out to be great and law related and interesting what you would then do is write an email to the admissions committee and you know, kind of like an update um, and ask them to put it in your file. And I would see that as a reader and I would like that. I don't think you should hold your application necessarily, especially if you're ready to apply now and you, or you wouldn't rewrite a personal statement or something like that. You would simply do an additional uh, kind of an update um, and say that you've, that you've had this great internship and it's, you know, it, you know how, how that relates to your interest in the law. So if I know that, uh, like if I am confirmed the position mm -hmm. to start an internship before I send in the application, is it also better to turn in um, a follow-up email or so instead of just including that in my resume as like a future position or anticipated position? If you know that you're going to start the position in January, let's say, and in, in September, you already know. You can definitely put it on your resume and then say starting, you know, January 2020. I've definitely seen that. And it's a nice addition to your to your resume. Um, if you start it and it's incredible and you love it and you think it, it could be a, a nice little paragraph, then later. I don't think you should go on and on about how much you love a job that you haven't started yet. Right. Because um, you don't know anything about it. So just just before include it on your resume only and make sure it's clear that you're starting it later. And then if it turns out to be, you have something interesting to say about it, uh, still send the, send the additional email. I'm afraid we only have time for one more question. Emily, 
Hi, everyone. Um, so I actually have two questions, but I hope they'll be quick. Um, the first one is about uh, letters of recommendation. It was mentioned that if there have been letters of recommendation that you saw that made you, you were going to recommend someone, you know, to for acceptance, we bumped yeah. up to the next level, um, but then you read it and you you read a letter of recommendation and you changed your mind. What types of things did those letters have? It, 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 when I changed my mind, I downgraded? Yes. Oh, okay. So I also want to be clear. I, I, I didn't want my comments on LORs to suggest that they're not important because I think they are very important. Um, someone said, I, you know, maybe they're not as important. They are important. I was just trying to say you can't, it typically doesn't make or break, but that doesn't mean what's in there is not important. Um, in terms of what would make me downgrade, I, I do think it's rare that a, an LOR is really, it's actually bad, but there are some that are where they just say, you know, I just don't think the student, you know, has the capacity to be a good lawyer, or I have serious concerns about their moral, you know, orientation or a couple different things like that. I mean, they were pretty significant. Um, and it was pretty rare that 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 would be in there. Um, if it was just kind of not that great, but I sometimes I wondered if it was more the personality of the of the writer. I'm not going to dock someone for that. Um, it's 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 a bummer, and I, I wish that student knew it so they could have chosen someone else. But I'm not going to dock someone if I feel like because sometimes you'll get the, the 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 writers who are really not very keen on law school and say kind of um, tardy, snarky things about law school, um, I'm not going to hold that against the, the, the applicant. Okay, so usually... Great and significant about the applicant. And I'm always okay. grateful. I mean, there, and like I say, that, that was actually quite rare that that would happen. But when it did, it, it did impact how I, how I felt about the candidate. But it was usually explicitly said. I kind of have a concern about asking a former employer to write a letter for myself, and she's kind of a dramatic personality, and I wouldn't want her eccentricities to come off as not genuine so it was usually when people were saying explicitly this person wouldn't be a good fit yes I do think I had any number of eccentric LORs that really were badly thought out on the part of the writer I, I, I'm not gonna hold that against the candidate if, if it's just their if the letter writer's crazy is showing through I'm not gonna hold that against the candidate okay um, and then I have one quick one, like it could be a one or two word answer. Do you have any um, topics for personal statements that you're, you say, definitely don't do it? You know, I've heard don't talk about study abroad, um, but do you have any topics that you say definitely don't talk about it? Oh, I think, unfortunately, that's not really a, a, two, a two word answer. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's pretty, pretty nuanced. Um, I've seen everything and anything. Um, some were much more successful than others, but it's just not something I think I could summarize quite that quickly. You okay. can, Brigitte, if you want to take a, a minute yeah. that's or two, that's okay. Well, I'm just trying to think of, um, no, it's, it's very hard to answer though, because it's also, if it's something that's extremely heartfelt for someone, I don't want to be the one to say, yeah, don't write about that. You know, I, 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 I'm noticing a question about diversity statements. I will say that I, lo I personally love diversity statements. I feel like sometimes the personality comes through even more in a diversity statement than in the personal in the personal statement. And so really think about what is your best thing to talk about. And if that best thing is your diversity statement, make that your personal statement instead. And don't then you don't need a diversity statement. But the topics that people raise, which are typically very personal, really worked in a lot of cases. In most cases, I would say they, they, they tended to be very interesting. Uh, you know, I've heard people quip that you're not supposed to talk about, you know, coming out anymore because it's too universal, that it used to be you couldn't talk about, like a, like a generation ago, people talked about their parents' divorce. Now they're not supposed to talk about that because everyone's parents are divorced. You know, then it was coming out. Um, now people say don't do that because too many people do that. I, I don't really believe that. I believe that any story, heartfelt, impactful, can, be, can make, a, make a difference to the reader. That is such a Sorry. great yeah. note to end on. <laughs> I wish I could answer more questions, but I, because uh, there's so many good ones. But thank you for joining everyone. Brigida, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was so informative. And I want to thank everyone else who came. I'm really sorry that we didn't have time to answer everybody's questions. If you want to work with Brigida or another member of the team, just get in touch. And in the meantime, I will talk with Brigida about doing something like this again. So thank Sounds you great. all.
Good luck. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Have a good night. Hello, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode useful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. And if you're looking for more information on law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com slash admissions.